0: Welcome back to very motives.
1: We hope you had a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. We're back. It's January and we are raring to go.
0: We are excited
1: to be back with you. Did you make a New Year's resolution? I always make New Year's resolutions.
0: Do you follow them?
1: Sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what my success rate would be though, to be honest. How about you? You're not really one for resolutions, usually, are you? No. Except to drink more water. I know that's been one like every single year for you. Did you make that resolution
0: again? Every year. That's my (laughs) go-to. I just have a hard time making a resolution because I don't like failure. Well, then you stick to your resolution. (laughs) I know. But what happens if you
1: fail? (laughs) I'm just kidding. If you don't make goals, you don't have to worry about failing them. (laughs) That's right. Join us for more inspirational (laughs) tips to come.
0: But I do like New Year's because it is a time to kind of commit yourself to something new. It's a time of year when you get a chance to choose a direction.
1: Yeah, it's like a little fresh start every year.
0: It is. It feels exactly like starting fresh. Those were the kind of thoughts I was having as I prepared this case for us this week. There were so many times the individuals in this case were given the opportunities to choose what kind of people they wanted to be. So many forks in the road to choose from and so many chances given to write past ways and make an attempt to make things better Or make a different choice. This case reminded me that we all have choices about how we react to situations that we're put in that are beyond our control. Those decisions decide whether or not someone becomes a dirtbag.
1: Ooh, that's very true. I always find it so interesting when there can be just a pivotal choice that takes someone on a totally different road. It's so
0: true. And I feel today's dirtbag made all the wrong choices. Today's case begins with a love story Michael and Deborah Lyles were married in 1975. Both Mike and Deborah, or Debbie, had grown up in the working class section of North Jacksonville and wanted to raise their family in the same community. As a child, Debbie had loved her close-knit community that a friend called a haven of safety and camaraderie. It was exactly the kind of place that they wanted to raise their kids in. In 1980, she and Michael bought a ranch-style house with Spanish archways in Panorama Park in Jacksonville, Florida. They fondly referred to their new home on East 59th Street as the Castle. Oh, It's so cute. It does look like a castle. They filled it with love and laughter with their growing family. As Mike worked at a bank and later helped to run a day labor business, Debbie stayed home with their four children, teaching them about the world and music. Debbie loved to play the piano, and her children were raised on everything from Bach and Chopin to Paul Simon.
1: Oh, I love that. Music just seems to make a home that much happier.
0: It does. And music was just a part of Debbie's fabric. Together, she and Mike built a life of kindness, teaching their children to be honest and charitable and always forgiving, the kind of people that help to make the world a better place. They also taught them that each person was responsible for their choices and should be accountable for them. Mike was a man with a huge heart and many convictions. And he seemed like one of those people that had the courage to put their convictions into action. One time in his 20s, he came upon a panhandler on a bridge that had a sign, we'll work for food. Mike offered the individual the opportunity to work for him for good wages. When the individual turned him down, Mike made his own sign and took up residence standing on the bridge alongside the man. Oh. Mike's sign read, no, he won't.
1: Oh my goodness. I actually love that.
0: <laughs> it is so perfect. And I think it. Totally speaks to Mike's character. He's willing to help out, but he's not going to take any bull either.
1: No, and obviously being a person of your word was important to him.
0: Very important to him. Mike went on to work for four decades helping people find temporary work that would start them on the path to being self-sufficient. It was always important to Mike that each person knew that even at their lowest that they were loved and had value, that there was someone to help. He believed that a person just had to reach out and be the one to take what was offered and make good on it, that a person could change their story. Those were the kind of people that he and Debbie were. They were kind and willing to help anybody, but they were also not the kind to be taken advantage of for their kindness. To them, kindness and compassion were choices that someone could make purposely.
1: They sound absolutely amazing.
0: Reading about this family just endeared them to me so much. It really seemed like they lived what they preached. And through this case, I think you'll agree. It really sounds like it. On July 9, 1993, while pregnant with her fifth child, Debbie was at home alone, talking on the phone when she saw a man's face in the door window. The stranger standing there asked if they had any yard work to be done so that he could earn some money. Debbie told him that they didn't, and he appeared to leave. After finishing her phone call, Debbie continued her earlier task of unloading shelving from her family's vehicle. That's why the door was left unlocked 35 minutes later when Curtis' head came bursting through the door. Oh, no. This time he was agitated and shouting about yard work. Debbie, desperate to get him to leave the house, told him that she would call her husband and that he could find him work. Because this is exactly what Mike did for work. Right. In response to her offer for help, Curtis locked the door. (gasps) Oh! grabbed her by the throat, pushed her onto the couch, and started punching her. No. He demanded to know where her money was for over 20 minutes (gasps) while he beat her. And she's pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. Five months pregnant. I cannot
1: even imagine the fear that would be going through her. Not only would she be worried about her own life, but
0: also the life of her unborn baby. Mm Mm-hmm. She told him that her money was in the kitchen trying to cooperate, doing anything to get him to stop beating her. Debbie said, quote, As he dragged me to the kitchen, he kept punching me in the face. I thought he was trying to knock me out. I told him if he knocked me out, I would not be able to show him where the money was. And so he did stop beating me. At this point, my face was covered with blood. Debbie managed to stagger into the kitchen and hand over $50 from her pocketbook. And when Curtis demanded more, she told him about her wedding rings on the window ledge above the kitchen sink. Curtis then tied her up with a cord from the vacuum and the leather strap from her pocketbook that she had just emptied for him. Then he took off in the family's 1989 Plymouth Reliant.
1: And did he take the rings?
0: Yeah. Luckily, though, a neighbor had seen Curtis burst into the front door of the house, and they had called the police. The police arrived, pulling their cruisers across the end of the driveway just as Curtis was trying to back out. It took the police over 20 minutes to get there? Yeah, that's how long it took the neighbor to call 911, report it to the police, and for the police to respond. That seems like a long time. It is. Curtis tried to flee on foot into a neighboring backyard, but was caught by the police. Deborah and the Lyles family were shaken from this experience. Being robbed and attacked in your own home can be such a traumatic experience, because it's supposed to be the one place you feel safe, and that was taken away from them. Oh, it's such an invasion. Mm Mm-hmm. As they went through the court proceedings, they learned that Curtis Head was a repeat criminal that had a lengthy rap sheet and had been given a 30-year jail term in 1980 for four different burglaries. While serving the term, he had received an additional three years for trying to escape prison. What? Mm -hmm. Why was he out? Well, somehow, a review panel saw fit to release him in May of 1993 after serving less than half of his sentence. Ignoring his previous 14 felony convictions and two parole violations, the review board declared that his good behavior in prison had earned him time off of his sentence.
1: Half of his time off of his sentence and he wasn't good. He tried to escape. That's not following the
0: rules, ladies and gentlemen. It's so wrong, but this practice of earning time through good behavior was one that Florida had implemented to deal with the overcrowding in its prisons.
1: Oh, so it's like, yeah, you're not good, but we have people who are worse.
0: Mm-hmm. Kind of like triage in a hospital. Right. And so he was let back out on the streets. Oh. In Jacksonville, which is commonly nicknamed the murder capital of Florida, overcrowding is a frequent issue in their prisons. Curtis was given a life sentence, plus an additional 10 years for stealing the car on the 30th of September, 1993. And he remains at Union Correctional Institution to this day. One of the only reasons why his sentence was so stiff for Debbie's attack was because of the newly introduced home invasion law in the state, and Curtis became the first person in Florida to be convicted under it.
1: Oh, well, that was good timing.
0: It was good timing. It seems like they had finally figured out to throw the book at this dirtbag. Good. But this dirtbag isn't the one that we're going to focus on today.
1: Well, I was wondering... (laughs) If he's in prison for the rest of his life, he didn't actually murder <laughs> anybody. What are we doing here? Melissa, did you forget what our podcast is?
0: <laughs> no. But there is another worse bag. After this ordeal, the family chose to use this experience for good. They identified areas that had led Curtis to being able to attack Debbie that day. Mike was enraged that Curtis had been out on the streets to harm Debbie. Maddened that he had served less than half of his sentence for violent crimes. Not even 60 days after his release from prison, Curtis chose to use his second chance to rob and attack Debbie. Mike became an activist in his efforts to protect his family and future victims against repeat offenders. He became the president of the local chapter of Stop Turning Out Prisoners, a group that lobbied for tough-on-crime legislation, and later worked with the Justice Coalition.
1: It sounds like he has the perfect personality
0: to do that job. He did. Debbie had a harder time adjusting. Her whole view on humanity had changed. How could evil be overcome by kindness and mercy that she had always taught her kids? Debbie made a conscious decision to challenge her new outlook. She chose to spread joy with music and reach out to even more children. She started teaching music at the local school and providing after-school drama and music activities for children to occupy themselves with. She chose kindness, trying to make a difference one child at a time the couple also chose to stay in their home. They made the purposeful decision not to move from their castle, even though the street they lived on had changed quite a lot since they had first moved in. It was the neighborhood that Debbie had grown up in, and they weren't willing to give up on it just yet. Sadly, past city planners had focused more on segregation than unity when dictating which areas of Jacksonville could have services and businesses. This had promoted areas of the city to become more disadvantaged than others, and unfortunately, the Lyles area was one of those disadvantaged ones. Oh, that is frustrating. Mm -hmm. The burglary and attack on Debbie were not isolated events in their neighborhood, and over the years, they had their fair share of thefts. But the couple remained adamant about not being a part of the problem, and instead chose to be a part of the solution. They held fast to their neighborhood, choosing to be the bright spot in the community. Even after their own children had all moved away, they remained.
1: That's really admirable. It would be easy to just pick up and get out of dodge.
0: It is. They just weren't willing to give up on it and move away like so many other families had that had the means to do so. They stayed behind. To try and make it better. Yeah. Debbie continued to work with children, inspiring young minds with her music and laughter. And Mike continued to advocate for victims of violence and accountability for criminals. He and Debbie would tell their story to others, hoping to inspire change. Gerald, the couple's oldest son, said, quote, that his parents didn't leave for the suburbs in large part because they didn't want to be a part of the legacy of racism. They had taken this awful thing that had happened to them and made a conscious choice to have something good come out of it. They were just those kind of people. Unfortunately, dirtbags don't often give any thought to the kind of people their victims are. On the morning of March 23rd, 2017, Adam Lawson chose to enter the Lyles' home to steal their valuables.
1: Man, this poor family. I just don't know how you could feel comfortable in your home after being robbed repeatedly.
0: It would have been so difficult, but that's how strong their convictions were. Yeah, that says a lot. Mm -hmm. Especially after she had actually been physically attacked. Mm -hmm. She could have lost their youngest child. As well as her life. Exactly. Exactly but they just wanted to make a difference. Adam Christopher Lawson Jr. was born on June thirtieth, 1992. By the time he was 24, his drug addiction lifestyle was supported by breaking into other people's homes and stealing from them. It was a lifestyle that he had fallen into and had become quite practiced at. On Christmas Day back in 2007, at 1am in the morning, Adam, at the age of 15, along with some older boys, broke into a home at 326 Pine Street in Fort Meade, Florida. The owner of the home came home during the process, and the four burglars fled the scene with their stolen goods, but not before battering the owner's five-year-old son. What? The five-year-old? Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, big strong men to beat up a little five-year-old child. They took on a
0: five-year-old. They're disgusting. Mm Mm-hmm. When police arrested Adam, he admitted to the crime and another burglary that they had committed. He was charged with two counts of grand theft, burglary and battery, and burglary of an occupied dwelling, and was sent to the juvenile assessment center. When he was released from juvie, he went right back to his former lifestyle and was arrested again for committing a burglary on February 6, 2010, just before he turned 18. This time, he was sentenced to just a little over six years and was released on March 9, 2016 and was to remain on probation for two years. Once released, he met with his parole officer in October and November of 2016 and told them that he had secured a job with a canvassing company going door to door doing surveys. The parole officer didn't think to verify this information and didn't seem to raise any question about the appropriateness of this job that would have given Adam an easy way to canvass homes.
1: That's what I was just thinking. (laughs) Like, this is the worst job for a professional burglar, because they can basically have an excuse to go up to your door and scope it out.
0: And nobody batted an eye.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: There is some debate of whether he actually worked for this company, or if he just told his parole officer about it. But it was on his parole file that this is the job that he told his parole officer he had. And she was like, yep, good, awesome, you've got a job. What?
1: <laughs> to me, if you're going to lie, you could say, yeah, I'm flipping burgers at McDonald's. Why would you lie about a job that is putting you to multiple people's homes in a day? Yeah. That in and of itself should have caused her to be like, hmm, like you said, maybe this is not a good fit.
0: That's right. But nothing happened of it. That's wild. It is wild. On the morning that he secretly entered the Lyle's home, Debbie, now 62, was at home again by herself. Her students were on spring break, and so she too was relaxing. She and Mike had spent the previous weekend going to the Josh Groban concert, and had even gotten a picture with the star. Aww. It was actually such a sweet story. Her husband had called over Josh Groban saying, hey, do you want to have a picture with the best music teacher in the world? Aw, no way. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: That's amazing. It is. But I cannot believe that she's home alone again when this is going to happen.
0: I don't know if I'd ever have the courage to be home alone again, but she did, and she was enjoying her holiday at home. She wasn't expecting to see an intruder in her house that morning. When she was surprised by Adam in her home, she grabbed Mike's nearby golf club to protect herself. Yeah. Met with the threat, instead of fleeing... Adam advanced with a frying pan and wrestled the club from this petite woman's hands and chased her down the hall of her home. Sadly, this dirtbag made the same decision that the last dirtbag did, and he began to beat her. Adam beat her with the club until her skull and jaw shattered. (gasps) At some point, as she fought for her life, it is believed that he strangled her as well, cutting off her air to subdue her. But that was just not enough for him. He continued to pummel her. When she was no longer moving... Adam moved around the Lyles' home collecting the things that he had come for. Two TVs, a laptop, a record player, and some frozen food. Then he fled the home in the couple's 2010 Buick LaCrosse.
1: That's what her life was worth. Mm-hmm. And why is this so eerily similar to the first one?
0: Isn't it unnerving? Yes. It is almost the exact same pattern. It is.
1: A person should not have to endure that once in their life, but to have to endure it twice...
0: It's horrific. It's such a tragedy. Shortly after 1 p.m., Michael came home for lunch, and he immediately knew that something wasn't right as he pulled in the driveway. The car was missing, and the freezer in the garage was open, and there was food all strewn about. When he went inside, he saw the golf club and the blood splatter everywhere. Oh, And his beautiful wife of 41 years dead. No. He made a frantic, heart-wrenching call to 911. With the realization that it was already too late. Later, when he called his oldest son to tell him about his mother, he just said, They got her this time, son. (gasps) A parent should never have to make that call to their child. No. The couple's oldest daughter remembers getting the call from the police to come to her parents' home when she was standing in the checkout line at a grocery store. She still distinctly recalls abandoning her cart and making calls to try and protect her siblings from the horrific news. And I just think you would always remember the moment that you got that call. Oh, it would haunt you forever. Mm -hmm. Police begin to investigate. And two days later, they find Debbie's car hidden behind an abandoned house on Nodder Ave off Gopher Boulevard. With evidence they find in the car and with the help of Debbie and Mike's children, the police track down surveillance video that captures the car driving away from the scene and turning into a nearby trailer park shortly after the time of the crime was actually the kids that went around to different businesses on Main Street to say, hey, have you got any footage? One of the businesses was a funeral home, and they actually sat through a funeral waiting to talk to the director to see if they had any footage that captured their mom's car.
1: Oh, it just speaks to how much those children love their mom.
0: Yeah, it does. But their efforts were rewarded because the footage showed that their mom's car turned in to the trailer park. It was Long Branch Mobile Home Park on North Main Street, and it was just a mile from the castle, and was where Adam was living. The police started canvassing the area to see if anyone knew anything, and they find Adam at home and question him. Of course, he denies any knowledge of any attack to the police, but he makes a confession to his girlfriend after they leave. He tells his fiance that he did beat Debbie, and that he left her for dead. His fiance shares this knowledge with the police, and Adam is taken in for questioning on April 2nd. Good for her for doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. She just said she couldn't sleep. She just couldn't live with herself, knowing that information. No.
1: And how could you even sleep next to a man that you know did this to a woman?
0: Well, she didn't feel safe.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Debbie, at this point, was what, in her 60s? 62. Yeah. And he's a young buck. She didn't stand a chance.
0: He's quite short, but still, he easily overpowered her. Yeah. While he was interrogated, the police searched his house and they found a pair of shoes with what appeared to be blood on them. This blood would later be matched to Debbie's. A gun was also discovered at Adam's home. And I'm not sure if it was used during the robbery, but it definitely wasn't used against Debbie. She had died from blunt floor's force trauma.
1: And the fact that you said that he only lived a mile away from Debbie and Mike, to me, speaks to just how commonplace this was for him. Because normally, if you want to plan out a crime, you're not going to do it right in your neighborhood.
0: Oh, yeah. He has no impulse control. He just saw something and he wanted it. He needed it for himself. And so he took it. Right. And he didn't care who he hurt.
1: No. And he doesn't even care where he is, that it's so close to his home. He probably knows that the police are not actively looking into every single robbery.
0: No, it doesn't seem like he has any fear of the police. At the police station, Adam is made to sweat it out alone in the interrogation room for over four hours before he's questioned. During this time, he becomes increasingly agitated about being left alone. He does not like to be left alone.
1: Good. That's such a smart tactic by the police, because if they can get him already agitated,
0: he's more likely to unravel. Mm -hmm. And being left alone was the perfect tactic to use to unravel Adam. Once police start questioning him, he denies knowing anything about the break and enter the stolen goods, or anything about Debbie.
1: And his girlfriend has already said, yeah, he told me all about it. She's
0: actually in the next room, spilling the beans. Good for her. He maintains this, though, throughout the interview. When confronted with his fiancée's statements about what he said, he claims that she is lying.
1: Does he think she just made that up? How would she even know the details?
0: Yeah. Before ending the interview, the officer tells Adam that he should take the opportunity to tell them if he has made a terrible mistake, an accident, when he refuses to talk, the officer says, quote, basically, we were trying to establish a rapport with you to see if you were willing to talk about what happened, to see if you were willing to tell the truth, if it bothered you, if you had a conscience. Adam's answer to this was, quote, I would not like to speak anymore. Oh. A detective replies, quote, good, because you've said enough to seal your fate. We're going to find you a warm place to sleep. Ooh. As they leave the interrogation room, Adam asks if he can see his fiancée. The detective scoffs at him and says to him, quote, I'll tell you this, she's not your fiance, and she never wants to see you again. Ooh, insert mic drop. hmm Adam was arrested in the interrogation room for first-degree murder, armed burglary, auto theft, and possession of a gun by a convicted felon. As trial proceedings began, the Lyles family began a new kind of horror. Committed to ensuring justice for their mom, they attended over 20 pre-trial hearings as prosecutors argued about Adams' competency and deciding if the death penalty should be sought.
1: That seems like a high number of court proceedings
0: pre-trial. It is. I don't think we've ever discussed this aspect of a trial before, but what the victim's family goes through is horrific. This family has been vocal about the toll it takes on a victim's family to be present during the trial. They were shushed by bailiffs when they cried and comforted each other during the proceedings. And they had to listen to the prosecutors get excited in the hallway when they introduced the coroner's report that stated that Debbie had been strangled during her fight for life. The prosecutors were excited because it meant it was proof that the crime was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel, and it meant that the death penalty could be sought. But for Mike, though, this took away his one comforting thought that maybe Debbie hadn't seen Adam coming and that she had died quickly. Oh, so he knew that she suffered. Mm -hmm. But
1: I cannot get over, excuse me, that the bailiffs shushed them for crying? Yeah. That bailiff needs a new job if that's going to annoy you.
0: If you can't have any compassion on it. But it was an emotional outburst and they couldn't have that in the courtroom.
1: I'm assuming it's not like they were like, wailing and rolling all over the floor
0: no let the people cry this is their mother and their wife Mm -hmm. but i don't think i've ever thought about what the family hears in the hallways or in the courtroom and how it affects them no
1: me either and never did i dream there would be so many proceedings before the trial even starts right i don't know if that's a common thing or not to have that many
0: i imagine it is wow As the weeks drew on, the proceedings were more and more difficult to endure for the family. There isn't much about the pursuit of justice that lends itself to comfort the victims or their families. In the year after the murder, Mike continued his work with the Justice Foundation, working to help victims of crimes, and he actually became their leader. He just continues to be an advocate for other victims and their families. That is incredible. Because he
1: had every excuse he would need to just retreat and curl up Mm -hmm.
0: he did but he just continued to fight wow that speaks a lot to who he is as a person does it also makes what happens that much more heartbreaking don't tell me something's going to happen to him too it does what Mm -hmm. in the summer of 2018 the prosecutors came to the family and told them that adam had agreed to plead guilty if the prosecution would take the death penalty off the table the new prosecutor offered the family a different concept referred to as restorative justice that would save them from having to go through the trial. Melissa Nelson, Jacksonville's lead prosecutor at the time, told them about how in other cases she had worked on, that other families had felt more comfort when they had had more say in what happened during the trial and what kind of sentencing that the defendant would face. Historically, it's always the prosecution that decides on the sentence that's sought. They could pursue the death penalty sentence even if the victim's family were opposed to the death sentence. Right. Now, what she offered the Lyles family was more say in what was happening to them. Melissa Nelson had become a strong advocate of restorative justice and had seen it work in the past to bring families more comfort. Danielle Sered, a specialist in restorative justice who has interviewed hundreds of crime survivors and who herself was raped and has lost loved ones to murder, has written that most victims say that what they most want from the criminal justice system is safety for themselves and their communities. While some may seek vengeance, those who take part in restorative justice tend to believe that harsh punishment alone only creates further destruction and doesn't allow something productive to come from their loss. And that totally was how this family was brought up. Oh, definitely. Mm Mm-hmm. The prosecution told the Lyles family that the questions that most families have are rarely answered in court proceedings. Families are often more concerned about the whys instead of the hows that the prosecution focuses on. Rarely do families ever get answers like that in court, where defendants have the right to remain silent, and there's an incentive for them to claim innocence even if they're not.
1: I'm just questioning to myself, why can't they have both? It would be nice to have both.
0: Mm -hmm. If it's a way for the family to be comforted... I think they should be given the whys. Definitely. But is a why more important than the justice? And that's the question that this family comes down to.
1: Because the justice is what will provide you with that feeling of safety, knowing that this person cannot hurt anybody else again. I'm thinking you can have that harsh punishment go out to the perpetrator and still look at it as a whole as to why did this happen and how can we prevent this from continuing to happen in our communities. Right. Why does it have to be one or the
0: other? That's a good question. Because for the Lyles family, they wanted justice. But they also wanted to understand why this had happened. All of the Lyles family members, but one, Rocky, the youngest, were all on board for the death penalty. They wanted justice for Debbie. Both of the men that attacked her had
1: been given second and third chances. This was not their first offense.
0: No, there was something broken with the system, and they recognized that. But Mike did have a burning list of questions, and so did his kids. They wanted to know, did Adam have an accomplice? Did Debbie try and get away? Why them? And what did he do with the things that he stole? And how was he able to move such a heavy TV all by himself? Did Debbie know that she was dying? Was she alone at the very end? All of these questions could only be answered by one individual. An unprecedented arrangement was made. That the death penalty would be taken off the table if Adam would agree to meet with them and answer all of their questions. Oh my goodness. Face to face. Wow. And the death penalty would only be removed if the family felt satisfied that Adam was being honest with them. Okay, I can see the lure for the family to go that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Because
1: they're not saying we don't want him punished, just we'll take that part off the table. Right. He's
0: still going to go to jail. But this way, they would get some of their questions answered. And what the experts were explaining to them is most often, even after somebody's given a life sentence or a death sentence, those questions still linger for the family. And they don't find comfort in the sentencing because they have all these questions still. I wonder, though,
1: how often the answers to those questions brings comfort or
0: more grief at the horrific answers. Or more questions. Right. But the Lyle's family were presented with several cases where the victim's families felt better about this solution. Okay. When the day came in September of 2018, the family was prepared. They had their lists of questions and what they wanted to say to Adam, who had taken Debbie from them. They prepared themselves by learning about his childhood. It hadn't been a good one. His father was incarcerated shortly after he was born for aggravated child abuse on an older child. As a toddler, he had been repeatedly left on his own for days without food or supervision for large periods of time. One of these times he was left unsupervised, he ate drugs left out by his mother and had to be treated for an overdose.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: And this wouldn't be the only time in his life that he would need treatment for an overdose. His mother was an habitual drug user and was incarcerated several times for drug-related charges. Another time he was left alone... At the age of four, he was found just aimlessly wandering around the highway. The highway? Mm-hmm. As a child, he remembers being whipped with extension cords and being sexually abused, and having a sibling die in a house fire. He was placed in more than 20 different foster homes, but never found a place where he could feel safe. At the age of 13, he tried to take his own life because, quote, nobody wanted him. By the age of 15, he was burglarizing houses to support himself and his drug habits.
1: Oh my goodness, Melissa. That is a rough childhood. It is. It does not sound like he was protected one day of his life.
0: No. And as the family learned of his childhood, they developed compassion for him because that's what they had been taught by their parents. Mm -hmm. Each family member had come with a specific question they needed answered or a specific thing that they needed to say to Adam. Michelle brought a binder filled with police reports wanting to make sure that Adam saw all the horror that they had been shown. Mike had brought his tattered King James Bible, planning to read a passage to Adam about forgiveness. Dana had brought a picture her mom had given her son to comfort and inspire him. She wanted Adam to appreciate the life that he had taken. And Gerald had prepared by sending a letter to Adam just days prior to the meeting. In it, he wrote, quote, on March 23rd, 2017, you murdered my mother. I'm writing to say that I forgive you. No matter what you've done or will do, God can still do good in and through you. Wow, that is remarkable. It is so remarkable, but I think it speaks to how they were raised. Well, and this isn't even years
1: later. This is
0: pre-trial. Mm-hmm. This is pre-trial. That's incredible. As they waited in the library to meet Adam, they all felt like they had prepared. But Adam would injure their hearts one more time, striking another blow that they hadn't anticipated. He refused to meet with them.
1: No way. Mm -hmm. No way.
0: Yes. Doesn't that make him just that much more of a dirtbag?
1: He is a total dirtbag. Yeah. They have prepared. They probably have been so emotional leading up to this, going through a roller coaster of emotions. And the piece of garbage can't even take the time to come and face them.
0: Yeah. What a coward. It is so cowardly. I just think this was the only thing that he could have done for this family. He couldn't bring Debbie back. No amount of I'm sorry would have made them feel better, but this could have made them feel better. And he refused to do it.
1: And it was in his best interest. He wanted the death penalty taken off the table. They're saying, okay, we'll give you what you want, but this is what we need. Yes. Like you said, his one chance to try and make some sort of restitution for his vile actions
0: and he couldn't do it.
1: Couldn't or just chose not to?
0: That's up for debate. Despite multiple attempts by prosecution and his defense team, Adam refused to hold up his end of the deal. He just kept repeating over and over again, I can't. This dirtbag had the ability to carry out murder, but didn't have the courage to sit down with Debbie's family after he had taken her life.
1: No kidding. He's this big strong man with a golf club. When it's just him and Debbie in the room. Mm
0: -hmm. But as soon as he's held accountable, oh, he's too scared. Exactly. After he had agreed to tell them everything, he refused to say anything.
1: Do you think it was vindictive or do you think it was just more selfish?
0: I think it's hard to say. This is what the prosecutor said happened when they were trying to convince him to talk to the family. Because it was hours that the prosecution and his defense team were telling him, no, you need to do this. And he had been prepared for it.
1: And meanwhile, the family's sitting there waiting.
0: Exactly. Oh. And when they were appraised of the situation, Mike was livid. He was like, get him in here. Make him do this. And one of the things he really struggled with is that they could force this guy to go to his death, but they couldn't force him to tell them the answers that they wanted. That is frustrating. Mm -hmm. When the prosecutors broke the news to the family, they said, quote, he's pitiful, like he's still a little child. He just won't do it they suggested that it might have been Gerald's letter that had gotten to Adam, and that he just couldn't deal with the guilt or the shame. Adam's attorney later tried to explain that Adam had gone almost completely nonverbal, Despite having preparation sessions to help him meet with the family, it was felt that like other people who have committed violent offenses, especially boys and young men, he had become so ashamed of his actions and defeated by the events of his life that he couldn't function. This caused Adam to completely shut down under the pressure of facing Debbie's family. And I'm not sure if I buy it. I just can't help but think he was a coward who couldn't face up to the fact that he was a dirtbag. Yeah, he chickened out. He did. This was the second most dirtbag decision he could have ever made.
1: The first one being murdering Debbie.
0: Yes. The family now had another choice to make. They could go to trial seeking the death penalty and probably win. But it would likely take more than a decade before he was put to death, and they would have to face appeal after appeal. They commented that their lives would revolve around making sure another human being was killed. A trial would also open up the possibility that Adam could somehow be acquitted and be able to do this to someone else's family. Or they could stick with the deal Adam would plead guilty in exchange for life in prison. This family chose life in prison for their murderer holding out hope that they would again be able to try to meet him behind bars at a later time and get answers. It honestly sounds like the reasonable choice. It does. Especially after I read their experiences with just the pre-trial hearings. Right. And how difficult that was for them. I think I would insist,
1: though, that he wasn't allowed any appeals.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Before Adam was sentenced, tragedy struck the Lyles family again, and many feel it was indirectly caused by Adam's decisions. On October 16th, 2018, Mike was found dead in his castle. What? In- hmm In the weeks and months that followed Adam's refusal to talk to the family, Mike's health had deteriorated. Oh. He couldn't sleep. He was paranoid that somebody was breaking into the house. He stopped taking care of himself and the house that he had shared with Debbie, allowing the dog to chew up furniture and make his own messes everywhere. The children tried to get him to leave the house, but he refused, saying, quote, if staying in that neighborhood had killed Debbie, why should I get to escape? Oh, no. His death was determined to be from natural causes, and the family doctor declared that his death had been caused by broken heart syndrome. Oh, that is
1: devastating. It is. Those poor
0: children. All because of one dirtbag's decisions. Oh. And he was doing fine up until the point that Adam refused to talk to them. He was being a strong advocate. He was still fighting for victims. He was doing all of those things. He was doing just fine. That's devastating. It it was so devastating. Adam Lawson was sentenced to two life sentences for first-degree murder and armed burglary. He also received another 20 years combined for his other convictions on February 21st, 2019. During the victim impact statements, a home video of Debbie and her family was played. The whole time, he kept his head down rocking back and forth with his fingers plugging his ears, blocking out the voice of the woman that he murdered. Beyond entering his guilty plea, Adam did not speak, still refusing to hold up his end of the bargain. He remains in the annex in Mayo, Florida. So many times, he was given the opportunity to choose a different path, paths that wouldn't have continued to hurt people. And so many lives were affected by this one dirtbag's decisions. The prosecutor that offered the family restorative justice hasn't offered it since. Michelle had to quit teaching because she couldn't stop seeing Adam as a child in her students. She said she worried that she was becoming someone she didn't want to be, and that she would find herself in a newspaper under the headline quote, Teacher Tells Students He'll End Up a Murderer. Mm but I think Debbie and Mike's son best captured the decisions that Adam had despite his past. When asked about wrestling over justice when you account for someone's life, he said, quote, As gut-wrenchingly awful as Lawson's childhood was, he still had a chance every day to make decisions. He had the chance to choose to let my mother run out of the house. He had the chance to choose and face us and say, what questions do you have for me? It actually ignores his humanity to suggest otherwise.
1: So true. And he had the decision to just run out of the house when he saw that Debbie was there. Mm -hmm. And this has taken a long time to get to this point. He had ample time to think about his decision not to face the family and could have changed his mind. But he didn't. He wouldn't even watch her video. He was a spineless
0: little slug. Yeah, it is just so sad. And that is the case of the cowardly, wayward, thoughtless Adam Christopher Lawson Jr. that chose murder over taking responsibility for his life. The dirtbag that continued to put his own needs above others and choose not to give his victims' families even an ounce of respect after they spared his life. That is terrible. And it
1: is so pointless. He killed her for what? A TV and some frozen chicken nuggets? Mm Mm-hmm. It's just so awful that that's all the value that he placed on life. Yeah. And it literally destroyed Mike and the trauma will live forever in those children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. It's just such an awful,
0: awful case. It really is. What a way to start the new year, Melissa. I think it's the perfect way to start the new year with a discussion about the choices that each one of us have.
1: You're absolutely right. And speaking of choices... We hope each one of you will choose to join us again next week.
0: Until then. See ya. Bye. Did you, reserva- did you make a reservation did you make a reservation?
1: For dinner.
0: <laughs> so somebody else will cook. Uh. Priorities.
1: No, <laughs> no. You have to cut that out. You cannot put that in there.
0: <laughs> if people only knew how dark my humor was.
1: <laughs> when you looked at me, I thought you were looking at me like. What are you talking about? I don't I'm like, know. I'm trying totally, to focus through. Did the... I totally misunderstand everything you just said? Like,
0: I'm trying to focus through my glasses, my smudges.
1: I don't think my brain registered it okay. quick enough. Yeah, but that's probably just how my brain is right now. Okay.
0: <laughs> ba- 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 the what? Yeah, I get it.
1: <laughs> I know it was sadly though. It was sadly
0: <laughs> armed. Bra- Boggler-y.
1: Oh, you were doing so I'm good. so good. When you said it. it earlier, I was going to say something and I didn't. I'm like, I'm not going to jinx her. But I thought it in my brain. So maybe that was jinx You did enough. jinx
0: me. So I was like, oh, she said burglary <laughs> so well. It's a good word for her now. No, it's not. Not yet. I still have to really, it's a lot, it takes a lot of brain power to say it.
1: Hey, but you have improved so much. <laughs> I'm proud of you. I'm trying to hold it together so I don't fall on my chair. <laughs>